right, let's have prayer together. Lord, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we ask that this time, as we read it, as we think through it and discuss it, we pray that we would have understanding. We pray that the truths and the history that is given here would um, sustain us and that it would help us live for you and that we'd know how to apply it and that we would see this life the way that, that we should and the way that you do. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would guide in every part of what is said and done here today. And so our faith is in you, and we look for fruit from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we get started on verse 8, we have already seen the creation. We have looked at the, the seventh day and the rest that um, God took on the seventh day. And last week we ended with the creation of mankind, which was of Adam. And so the seventh day was the, the end of the seven days, but then there's a restatement about a couple other days of creation where there's more information given. And we talked about how God formed man from the dust of the ground. And when it says he formed man, it means he formed Adam specifically. Um, there are occasions in the Bible where man means humanity or even times where man would, would apply to Adam and Eve. But here it specifically means that Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. Verse 8 then tells us that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. All right, so we have this garden eastward in Eden. So the question is east from what? East from where? Um, we don't really have a reference point. When it, it says eastward, maybe it means eastward from where the activity of verse 7 took place and where God formed man from the dust of the ground and then then he formed the garden uh, to the east. Um, but it says that God planted a garden eastward in Eden. So a lot of times we think of Eden as the garden. But according to the text, there was a garden that was in Eden. So Eden was bigger than just the garden, okay? It was a place. And it says he planted a garden there. Now, this garden was planted for a purpose. Right? God formed the garden, the Garden of Eden, and he formed it for man's benefit, for Adam and Eve. And he wanted them to have a special place to live. God had already done a great job on creation and said it was good, right? But then he planted this garden. And so this garden that he planted was obviously better than the rest of creation in some way, even if it's just in its arrangement or uh, how things work together. We don't know exactly, but he had a special place for them. And then it says he put man whom he had formed there. So, so God placed him in the garden. So God formed man, God planted the garden, then God put man into the garden. So you can kind of see the, the sequence of events here. Does anyone know what the word Eden means? Any takers on the word Eden? It means delight. Now, this is helpful for me because the Bible says God made this place for Adam and he called the name of it, or in, in the place that's called delight. And it shows that God has the intention of delighting. He wanted man to delight in his work, in his goodness, to take delight. Um, who named it? Who named this place Eden. It was probably God or it was Adam, but it couldn't have been anyone else, right? Because there was no one else that would be naming anything. So 
this garden in the place of Eden, man has been placed there. And um, there's also another place in the scripture where the garden of Eden is called the garden of God, which means the garden that God made, planted by God. So verse 9 then says, out of the ground, the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God is planting and causing to grow these trees. So again, we understand this to be day six of creation. The earth has, has been created. It's all these other days of creation are done. God has filled the earth with trees and um, now he's filling it with animals. But then on day six, it appears this is on day six that God is doing some work again with plants and he's causing these plants to grow in this special garden called Eden. So, um, so he brings specifically the trees that he wants and it says every tree, what are the two qualifiers to these trees? Does anyone want to read the quali- what, what kind of trees were they? It says oak tree and apple tree, doesn't it? All right, trees that are pleasant to sight. To sight, is that what it says, sight? And good for food. Now, this is a garden that God placed in the land that is called delight. And he did it for man. And there are two senses that God emphasized with these plants and trees the eyes, and the taste. The sight and the taste. Does anyone recognize these two qualifiers? Do we recognize them from somewhere else in the Bible? What's that? James 1 or 2? All right, we may follow up on that. What were you going to say? The what? When the snake tempted Eve... She looked at the tree and she saw that it was pleasant to the sight and that it was good for food, right? That's right. And there's a third thing that she says she saw that it was one to make, to make one wise. But it's interesting that these two things were God's intention with these trees, that they would be pleasant to the sight, that they would be good for food. See, God has created a land and an earth of beauty. And when things are beautiful to the sight, God is the one who made them that way. Nature has its own beauty. The food that is ours in creation is from God. God designed it that way. So it's not wrong, and in in fact, it's a good thing for Christians to take delight in the things that God has made. And so if you can travel, if you can see things, if you can enjoy good food, that is something that God has made to be enjoyed, to be received, to um, to be ours for his glory. So then it goes on to say the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So based on, on how it's phrased, it looks like it's saying that the tree of life was in the middle and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was simply in the garden. So if we imagine the garden to be a square, okay, which I know is a big assumption, might have been a big circle, who knows, square, circle, maybe it was a triangle, right? We don't know the shape of the garden. But in the middle, there was a tree called the tree of life. It was in the middle of the garden, in the midst of the garden. Now, somewhere in the garden, there was also another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But along with it are all other kind of trees. So let's label this one the tree of life, and we'll call this one K-E. We'll 
We'll just take K, the knowledge tree, the knowledge tree and the life tree. And then there's all these other trees, okay? We don't know where they were, but we'll just put a bunch of other trees in here. And they're all uh, good for food, and they're good to the eyes. They're pleasant-looking trees. I wonder if those two labels apply to the same tree, that they were beautiful and they produced fruit, or if they're separate trees. Some were for looking and some were for eating. I don't know. That's uh, a thought. Generally speaking, fruit trees aren't that beautiful. Like, in my mind, I'm thinking of apple trees. Now, I guess they can blossom, so maybe there's a little bit of beauty in the blossom stage, but... Other than that, I don't think they're that beautiful. Does anyone have any thoughts on fruit trees being beautiful? Has anyone seen a beautiful fruit tree? Cherry tree? Do, is it the blossoming when they're beautiful? Leafy. Okay. So a nice green look to them. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not an expert in fruit trees, so I'm just kind of suggesting all of this. Okay. But in the garden, we have the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life is in the center. These two trees are going to be very important further down in the story. Um, now, is there any question or comment uh, so far on any of the text? Question or comment? Do you have the mics on? All right. Looks like that's a no. All right. No question, no comment. Um, when it says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I want to talk about this for a little bit. Um, what does this mean, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And God is going to tell Adam to not eat of this tree. And sometimes people ask, why did God put a tree like that there in the first place? And, you know, if God loves mankind so much, why is there this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, let's Let's read, um, you know, we'll answer that further as we get into the text further down. I want to, we're just going to take a brief time to look at these rivers, and there's not a lot that's known about them. I'll give you the best I know, okay? So we won't reread them. There's one in 11. There's another one in, um, let's see here, 13, 14 has the, the last two. Two of these four rivers, we don't know where they are. And they've either disappeared before the flood. Um, we still know of the Euphrates River. And I believe it's the, um, the second river, uh, the Gihon, the one that surrounds the land of Ethiopia. Even with the, the markers that are used, this is pre-flood. And so we're not sure if the rivers run the same direction or if they're, you know, if, if the flood kind of moved them in, in channel or in, in direction and things. So there's a lot of unknowns about them, but it gives these four rivers, and it sounds like it's saying that, verse 10, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four heads. So I don't know if this is a water coming up out of the ground, and it kind of waters the garden, and then these four, let's just, again, imagining here, let's put these four rivers kind of flowing out the corners out of the garden, you know, and perhaps there's like a spring or a large, uh, you know, hole or something in the ground that is the, the uh, start of this, and then it splits into four. So maybe these river channels, yeah, of course you don't have the tree right in the middle of the river. Okay, my, my analogy's already breaking down. But, um, but you can kind of get an idea where it's saying there was four rivers here, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll circle that one around that tree, okay. Um, 
So it is interesting how this tree of life is in the center. And we don't know how it's all, you know, God may not be a God of symmetry like me where it has to go in perfect directions and all that. But um, the tree of life, if we read in Revelation, we read about a tree of life, right? And it says it's by a river. And I just find that interesting that in the garden, the tree of life, there was a river somewhere nearby. And in Revelation, we have a tree of life and there's a river nearby. So, um, so these rivers um, flow out of the Garden of Eden. Obviously, Eden was even better watered than the rest of the earth. Um, in verse 13, the name Ethiopia, the Hebrew has the word Cush. And so some people see Cush as Ethiopia. Some people identify Cush with other regions. Um, it's kind of one of those terms that's a little, again, unknown or unfamiliar. Um, in verse 14, or yeah, verse 14, we read about the river Euphrates. The fourth river is Euphrates. And that, again, is a river that shows up in Revelation. And in Revelation, the river, does anybody remember the river of Euphrates in Revelation? That river, what happens with it? Um, it might. I don't remember that part. That's not what I was thinking of, but what were you going to say? Yes. Yes, I believe it is. And then the part I was thinking of it is that it says it will dry up so that the armies from the east can advance on Israel. And so they're kind of held up at the river and the river dries up and they march across. And that's right before the Battle of Armageddon. So this is all this river Euphrates. All that to say, I, ju I guess I just see a link between the very beginning and the very ending and how this river Euphrates is mentioned, this tree of life is mentioned, this river is mentioned and it kind of just shows that God you know what God has set up has not been completely destroyed like yes it's been marred and yes it's not the same but it's there's an enduring center of it if you will that we see in the beginning and we see in the end and and God fills all the details in between okay um all right so the rivers is there any question on any of the rivers question or comment Deborah you have a mic there. Um, anyone after Deborah? Question on the on the rivers? Okay. It, it's actually there. You go. Um, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Like, if there is a tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was already a sense of evil could be a possible way. Like, where is that coming from? Yes. So we are going to talk about that as we get into the the rest of the text when he tells them not to eat of it. So. But that's a very, very good question. Um, okay, so let's pick up in verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. And here it says why? To dress and to take care of it. Two purposes. To dress the garden and to take care of it. Um, some people, uh, I think that, that one phrase can be translated to keep it. To keep it. And some people understand the keeping in the idea of guarding, as, as in to guard it. Others see the keeping as more this idea, as it says here, um, to care for it. So, um, so it says to dress it and to take care of it. So the idea is God has already given man responsibility. He has work to do. He's going to dress this garden. He's going to take care of this garden. When I was a kid, a garden to me was a curse because it just meant work, right? And I hated working in the garden. And it's just not something that appeals to me naturally. Some people love working in the garden. I can assure you that before the fall, it was not a curse. God gave this garden as a blessing. 
And so Adam, I believe, enjoyed working there. I don't believe it was awful. There was no weeds to pull. Um, he wasn't sweating, apparently, because that's part of the curse, sweating of the brow and so on. So it was more of a pleasure, but it was still a responsibility. There was still um, management and care that went into the work that he did. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for at the time when you eat of it you shall surely die. All right, so that's verse uh, 17. Um Let's, uh, let's talk about a couple things here. In verse 16, God commands Adam, and he says, you can eat of every tree but this one. And so God knows that man is going to be eating. He puts Adam right into the garden, and he tells him, you can freely, freely eat of every tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll call it KGE, okay? The knowledge of good and evil tree. He says you can eat of every tree of the garden except for this one. Who did God say this to? Adam. Who was the one who ate of the tree first? Eve was. And Eve was not created at this point. When the command was given not to eat of this tree, only Adam was alive. But if you listen, Eve repeats to Satan what God said. This tree is good for the eyes. It's and, uh, good for the eyes, and it's um, good, for, good for food, pleasant to the eyes. And then she says, God has told us that we can't eat of it. So clearly, either God restated it, or Adam told her what God said about this tree. Which way it happened, we don't know. But Eve got the message that they were not to eat of this tree. So the question then is, why is there this tree in the first place? Why have a tree that they shouldn't eat of? And I think this goes back to the idea of being created in the image of God. And this gets into a little bit of theory, but I think it's a very good question. God created you and me and Adam and Eve to make choices. And he put Adam on the earth and he said, name the animals. Did God name the animals? No. Did God tell Adam what to name the animals? No. Adam named the animals on his own, and God told him to name them, but he didn't tell him what to name them. And so God gave him a command, but Adam had freedom in choosing how to fulfill that command. God put him in the garden and said, you need to dress it, and you need to take care of it. There he has responsibility. He's told what to do. But in the way that he goes about that, he has choice, right? God says, you can eat of all the trees of the garden. There again, he can choose which tree. So there's choice, and at this point, we already see that God is giving man a choice. And what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does, in my opinion, is it offers man a chance to choose to go against God. If you think of it this way, in all these trees, there's only one tree to be avoided. One. Only one thing not to do. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, had they not eaten of it, I don't know how the story would have turned out. I don't know if there was a time limit. I don't know if, you know, in theory, thousands of years later, we would still all be like, don't eat of that tree, don't eat of that tree. You know, like, I don't know how that all would have worked out. But it's interesting to me that there's a link between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And after this tree is eaten from, 
God immediately bans man from the garden so that they do not eat the tree of life. So there is a connection between these two trees, and, and we'll have to kind of develop that, I think, more in chapter 3. But my point with all this is that God gives man a choice to go against him, to go against what he said. And evil itself, the nature of evil, is not just that, you know, in, in our minds we tend to think in things of that is a bad thing, that is a good thing. But do you know what really makes a bad thing bad? It's not the thing itself. Did you know that? It's not the thing itself that makes a bad thing bad. What makes a bad thing bad is that it's against God. Are, we, are, you, are you tracking me on this? Okay, getting a few blank looks like, what do you mean? When God says, this is good, do this, and God says, this is not good, don't do this, his word is what makes this thing so wrong. So, for example, let me explain. In the Old Testament, the Jews were not supposed to eat pork, right? Do we eat pork? We do. Do we enjoy pork? We do. We had barbecue just a couple weeks ago. I thought it was really good, right? Is the pork itself bad? It itself is not bad. What made it bad in the Old Testament was that God said, don't eat it. And so there, you know, we sometimes look at the effects of things, but even those effects are tied to the fact that God has determined that's wrong for us, and so he's created effects to flow out of that. With this knowledge of the tree of good and evil, God says, look at all the good things I've done for you. Here's one thing that I don't want you to do. And what he allows man to do now is have a choice to obey or to disobey God, a free choice. And what this means now is that if they are going to live in the goodness of God and enjoy him and have a relationship with him, it will be based on the fact that they have listened to what he said and they're trusting what he said and they don't disbelieve what he said. So there's an element of faith, even here at this very early moment, that they can trust what God says and avoid this tree and enjoy all the other trees. And if they believe God, they'll be fine. If they disbelieve God, they're going to eat of it. And having disbelieved and chosen against God, they will then sin, and that enters the whole chapter 3. So if God had never put a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, he would not have a creation that truly had a free choice to do what God said. It's, it, there's a sense in which it is a test. It is a test, and the test was failed. And we live with those ramifications today. Um, let's face it, I know we're not in Genesis 3 yet, but we sometimes tend to think, boy, if I was in the garden, I would do it different. I would do it different. But I highly, highly question that because we have sin natures and so we can easily understand making that wrong choice. But in this moment, you know, we say, oh, I would choose, I would choose to, to obey God. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Um, later in the millennium, the whole world is going to have Jesus rule over the earth perfectly. Satan will be bound. There'll be no Satan and the influence that today we call the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world is going to be under the power of Jesus. So the world is not going to have a negative effect on anyone. And do you know what happens at the end of the millennium? People rise up and rebel against Jesus. And so um, I just think we shouldn't, we shouldn't exalt ourselves above Adam and Eve as though we would never do that. I think that's, um, that's a presumption. 
So um, any question or comment on what we've covered here in these verses? Yes, Matt. And anyone after Matt? Did anyone else raise their hand? Okay. I just want to make a comment that when I got saved, um, I was very excited, but after I became saved, I started reading the Bible. This is the passage that I struggled with the most. Okay. And when I started reading, a lot of atheists referenced this. Why would all-knowing God put a tree in the garden, kind of like what Daniel was saying, Yes. Um, to make man downfall? Yes. And I see why a lot of people stepped away from the truth, because they uh, ask the question, this is what they reference. Mm. But it did the opposite. If you're doing a lot of research, uh-huh. uh, one of the uh, teachers talked about the Gnostic equation and that because we don't know how long Adam was there before. The right. Th- I mean, we don't know. There was right. no time. Yeah. So any human being that's put there, given a, a place where there's no time, uh-huh. eventually they will make that choice, which mm. goes back to your point. You ch- yes. You just yes. eventually you make the choice. Right. That's naturally. But the bigger thing is the uh, other passage that made it make sense was you get to see God's full glory going through this life this way. Mm-hmm. You get to understand who he is. You're not yes. this scenario. God will just say, oh, I'm God. I could do this. And you're like, oh, okay. Yes. You don't really know. But if you're coming from this life, this struggle, right. this same nature, yes. you'd appreciate God and you'd appreciate that there is death in that as well. Sure. So I just want to make that comment. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's all helpful thoughts. Um, and in kind of in addition to that, let's talk about the nature of God for just a minute, because so many people look at the story through the eyes of the humans, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve. But God himself has always existed. And God, through his creation, is manifesting his glory. And we see with the Garden of Eden, I just want to point out, how many good trees were there? How many trees were they forbidden of? They were forbidden of one tree, and they had all sort of other good trees. And to me, you know, people act as though God filled the whole garden with all these trees that could curse them and they could only eat from one tree, right? But that's not at all how it was. It was complete opposite. There was one tree that they were to avoid. All the other trees were good. Well, as we think about the nature and character of God, God has never changed. He is always who he is. And God is holy. And God is also good, right? And now there's, now he's a whole lot more than just these two things, all right? I'm just picking out two things. But in his holiness... The, whole, the idea of holy means separate. And God is, is separate from his creation, and he's also separate from sin. And so in this moment now, when he creates the, knowledge of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he has set up a, um, I don't know if we want to use the word test again, but an example or a situation that reveals his holiness. Because in, when Adam and Eve took of that fruit, did they know that God was holy? You bet they did, because God would not fellowship with sinners. God, that fellowship was broken. They immediately saw shame, and they knew evil. And they knew that God was holy. Now, I believe they could have learned it some other way. But the point is, God is exalting himself. God is always exalting himself. And so, so many people get wrapped up in the story based on Adam and Eve's perspective. And they don't see from God's point of view. And God is manifesting his holiness and his greatness. And so... 
this was one more way that, that he could do that. So I like the point about we don't know how long they were there before they ate, and that's very true. We do not know the timeline on that. All right, any other questions over here? Are you saying God revealed his holiness through the fall or through the placing of the tree and the option? I think even before the fall, God is displaying his holiness okay. because he's showing man that in order to have a relationship with me, there has to be a holiness relationship. And before man sinned, man was created innocent, and so they were separate. man was separate from sin on creation, right? And so they were holy, um, now maybe not in the, you know, certainly not saying they were just as holy as God, but in a reflection sort of way like we talk about it. So they have this relationship with God. God is holy, but they're in full communion. And then this tree, this command to not eat of this tree is a test or a display of this holiness. And once that is broken, then it's also displayed from the opposite side that they had, they had fellowship with God and holiness was a core component of that. And now they do not have fellowship with God and holy, his holiness is the opposite or the contra the contrast with the sin. So um, I feel like this tree displays God's holiness on both sides of the equation. So again, some of, there's some of this that's really broad and there's a lot of theology that goes into all these thoughts. You know, every person that has read this has maybe not thought through all these details of the why and the intricacies and everything. And I don't think it's bad to ask those questions. But I also think it's helpful for us as believers to step back and say it like this. That's how God did it, and God did it best. Because at this point, everything that God has done is what? Good. God created the land, and he said it was good. God created the light, and he said it was good. When God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he planted it there, guess what? That was good. That was the right thing for God to do. And so we, you know, I affirm that, um, kind of at the end of everything. And I, again, I don't think it's bad to ask those questions. But at the conclusion of it, I think it's important to say that. All right, anyone else? Uh, Esther. I just think uh, with the, you said he's holy and he's demonstrating his goodness. The fact that we, man has a choice would be demonstrating his goodness. Mm. Like, um, he set up his holiness and has communion with but his goodness is demonstrated in giving them a choice whether to stay in that holiness or choose their own way. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think that's, that's certainly a good way to think of it. I, in my mind, I was thinking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a display of his holiness and all the other trees that they could eat from as a display of his goodness. Um, again, because you know, it's amazing to me that people can look at that situation and call God unfair. It's like, he gave them all these other trees to eat from, and it's like, you're not being good enough. And it's like, what? hold on a minute, you know? <laughs> Again, it's like they've acted as though all the trees were the trees of knowledge, good, and evil, and there's only one good tree, you know? Um, so, you know, again. All right, let's go on now to verse 17. And, uh, but of the tree of the knowledge, good, and evil, you shall not eat of it. For at the time when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so God warns them that upon eating it, they will die. At this point, there's the, this is the only negative command that God has ever given. He has given some other positive commands prior, be fruitful, multiply, you know, take care of the garden, etc. 
And so um, we see this phrase about um, at the time, I think the old King James says, in the day that ye eat thereof. And we see this identical phrase up in verse 4. Um, these are the generations of the days of the, uh, the heavens and the earth when they were created at the time when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so um, the, the idea behind this word time or day is that God is saying that there's a simultaneous action. You eat and death comes. It's at the same moment. And um, there's, some, there's a couple other places that we see it. But the, the question then is, did they die that day? And you have these two schools of thought. One thought says that it's talking about spiritual death, and that came immediately. And there's other people that say, no, it's a reference to physical death. Um, but it doesn't happen at that moment, or it doesn't happen that day. Um, there's another example in 1 Kings 2 where we have that same phrase in, in that day or in that time where the story shows that it, the death came later, but it was because of what happened at that time. It's sort of like a judge sentencing someone to execution, but the execution happens later, and the day of their death was the day they were sentenced to die, but the death followed later. So, again, depending on, like, if you see it as physical death, it, it did not happen that day, right? They didn't physically die that day. If you see it as spiritual death, then, you know, you can understand that the, the separation from God was immediate. Um, and so those are kind of the two, the two ways to understand that, that dying there. Um, that's verse 17. Look at verse 18. And the Lord God said... Uh, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help suitable for him. All right, so at this point, we see a couple things. This is the first time that God utters the phrase, <laughs> that God utters the phrase, not good. All right, not good. And what's interesting is that God is the one who set up this situation of not good, right? Do we agree? God set up the situation, not good. All right, it's not good that man should be alone. And up to this point, God has created Adam, but we assume and we understand that in the animal kingdom, there was male and female that had been created. And we assume that from how the story goes with what happens next. So God intentionally goes out of his way to create Adam first, to then have an intervening period before Eve is created. And God knows that it's not good. I think that God was trying to get Adam to see that it was not good. That's what I think was going on. Because God already knew that, and he knew he was going to fix it, so it's not news to God, right? But um, he says, I will make a help, I'll make him a help suitable for him. Now, if you're familiar with the phrase, and maybe you've even heard it or used it, the phrase, help me. Are we fam familiar with the help me? Um, it's kind of become a noun, where we talk about, you know, God gave me a help me. Um, and it's kind of become one word, help me. But there are actually two different words, and this word meet simply means suitable or fitting. So it's kind of one of those words that it, it doesn't really make sense when you think about it. God gave me a help suitable. You know, like we probably wouldn't say that. Um, but the term help meet is something that's kind of become a part of our lingo and our language. Um, 
but it, in, technically what we would say is a helper would be the help who is suitable to me or for me. You just put the for me, okay? That's the idea behind this word, helper who is suitable for me or fitting. We could use the word fitting as well. God saw that Adam needed help. And can I just point out that God created Adam as he did and he created him to need help. Um, he says, yeah, you need to name the animals, you need to take care of the garden, and you're not going to be able to do it alone. You need some help. And um, I sometimes remind women that God never said that a woman needed help. He said that a man needed help. And so uh, that means that the man is, in a sense, in the weaker position, right? Because he's the one that needs help. Um, there's a sense in which the Bible says the woman is in the weaker position as well. So, you know, there's weakness on both sides, and I know we need one another. But, um, so God sets up the scenario where Adam does not have these animals, so, or doesn't have a helper. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam's giving out the names he does not have his own helper. It doesn't say it, but I assume they were coming in twos, perhaps, like we, we think of Noah. And there's two ways to understand this part, is that God is creating new animals and bringing them along to show, or it's just a reference that God had created the animals and he then brings them by Adam to be named. It's, it's probably not likely that Adam named every single creation of God that's an animal, but it's probably just the beasts of the field, I think it says. Oh, follow the air, it says as well. Um, and so, you know, um, every beast of the field, every follow the air. And so in our day, we're like, oh, wow, that's way too many animals to happen in one day and so on. But in the early creation, we don't, they didn't have all the variations, you know, like we have today. I mean, how many varieties of dogs are there? Like, I don't know, 400 or 1,000 or something. Lots of dogs, right? But in the cre beginning of creation, there was just two dogs, you know, two horses. And so some of them have crossbreeded and so on, and that's how we have some of these other varieties. So he didn't name all the fish, it, it would say. And some people just understand that it's the animals that were near the, uh, the garden. Others would say it was all animals. But regardless, God caused it to be this way so that Adam would see and then he would consider his own position. Um, can I also point out that the helper that he needed was not an animal? Because he had animals. And I know animals can be nice, and I think dogs are called man's best friend. Or is that horses? Is it dogs? It's dogs. What are horses called? Man's other best friend. Okay. Um, but, um, but God intentionally shows him that he's alone. And he shows him all the animals. He gives him all the names. And then at the end, it kind of restates it. But for Adam, verse 20, there was not found a help suitable for him. So uh, is there any question or comment up to this point? Okay. I guess my only comment is that verse 20 is pretty explicit that he gave names to all the cattle and to Yes, because it says every living creature. So yes. I don't, I don't know who <laughs> somebody you read was saying that might be nearby, but it doesn't really seem to be yes, I seem very clear. So I think, again, that goes back to the if God is creating new animals, 
Be, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, so there's, there, God created all the animals in the world, right? But in this story, the question is, because it says, um, and the Lord God, oh, it does say he formed every beast, doesn't it? Every fowl of the air. So, um, again, some people understand that this is a, uh, a second creation of new animals, whereas, like, there's animals all around the world, and he's creating new ones and bringing them by. So, you know, depending on how you understand it, if, it, if the God already created the animals, and after he created Adam, he never made any animals again, then you would understand that he brought by the priorly created animals. But the way the verb is, it actually, you know, you could translate it, God had formed them, but if you're reading it in order, it almost sounds like another forming. So, um, you know, that kind of enters into that whole discussion. But I, I see your point. It says every, it lists two, every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. So then there's this, the discussion about what's the definition of beast of the field. And so some people only understand that to be like four-legged creatures, like they would say bugs were not involved, you know, fish were not involved, and it's only certain categories of animals that were named. So um, there's, there's some, you know, like I say, you, you, there's several different ways you can put all the pieces together to understand that. But that's a good point. Anyone else? Question or comment? Yes, sir. Well, in verse uh, 24 of chapter 1, it says, Let the earth bring forth living creature, cattle, creeping thing, and beast of the earth. So I don't right. remember, when you went through that, you kind of broke that down. And yes. made some uh, explanation about that. But if yes. the bugs are the creeping thing, that isn't mentioned in chapter 2. Right. Named. Right. And then the, the beast of the earth and cattle obviously are. Yes. So it seems like, the f you know, all of creation besides what was in the sea mm -hmm. and the creeping thing. Right, right. Does that seem... Yeah, and I think, sense? especially with the fish of the sea, it's hard for them to bring him by in the garden, you know, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I guess there's the rivers, but, you know, how you accomplish all that. So, um, what I see, though, here is God is intentionally bringing Adam to see that he needs other people. And I know we think of this primarily in the context of marriage, but I do just want to make the application that God created us to need one another in general. Um, there is a special marriage relationship, obviously, but God did not create Adam and leave him alone. And in church, we understand the need for you know, one another and the gifts and the body of Christ and these different things. Here, even in creation, before the fall, God created humans to interact and to be around and to help each other and to talk and to go through life together. And so um, God has designed it, even before sin entered, that we would be a people dependent and helping one another. Um, there's no person that is so great and so good and smart and wise and strong that they can just live life alone. Uh, I know there's the occasional hermit, but hermits don't usually do that well. They kind of struggle, okay? So um, this is a part of God's design, and I think we'll stop here at verse 20. Um, that we need to recognize that we need other people. We need others. And sometimes people kind of cut themselves off. You know, they don't. Sometimes it means they don't come to church. They don't talk. They don't reach out. They don't help one another. And we're missing our purpose if we don't do that, right? Because God created us to be codependent, even before sin entered. So let's take it up a notch. Sin has entered. <laughs> we are now sinners. And I would say we need each other even more, right? Because... 
we now have that battle going on. And so the need for other people is very vital and very real, and it's part of God's design. So um, I guess just keep that in mind. And, um, you know, Paul is very clear in the, in the New Testament. There are some people that have the gift of singleness, and that's a reference to the marriage relationship and that need. But in the broader sense of all people have needs, all people need others. And I think we can find that in the passage. Any final questions or comments? Pastor Jeremiah over here. Anyone after him? Okay. Just kind of along with what you were saying, Adam needed someone, in Eve didn't, but eventually after her creation, she did need Adam. Right. And so not only do we and I need someone like, mm-hmm. to communicate with, to commune with, but I also need to meet the need someone else has mm-hmm. for that communion as yeah. well. So it yeah. is a two-way thing. But right. also you a- added how sin entered mm. and um, that kind of complicates things because, you know, how how did Adam end up eating of the fruit? Mm-hmm. Well, that companion is the one that handed him the fruit. So right. Right. who we decide to have that communion with right. and how we do it is also very important and sin complicates that. Yes. But who we choose to be companions with yeah. and to have fellowship with does determine somewhat our duration yeah. in life. So there's the help suitable and then there's the harm unsuitable, right? Yes. All right. Anyone else? All right. Let's close with prayer. Uh, Pastor Jeremiah, why don't you pray as we go?